continuing our series, The Change of Heart, and we passed out the latest set of notes a couple of weeks ago, and we've been plowing through those. We'll finish that current set today, and then we'll have our final session next week with some different notes. So we will pick up where we left off, and I will just quickly review in just a moment where we've been, but just one announcement, and that is on the 21st, a week from Friday is our annual Mud Hens game. I mentioned that just because it gives you an opportunity to get to know folks in a setting other than coming in, sitting down, and then leaving, and maybe shaking a few hands. And so that's why we, partly why we have these kind of events, for you to have the opportunity to do that. So I'd encourage you to think of it that way, and if you can make it, uh, we'd love to have you. You can uh, purchase the tickets on our website, cbctrenton.com. This is, as I said, and as it says on the front cover of the notes you have, change of, of heart. And we've seen that in order to have radical change, and by radical change, that means root. Get to the root of wha- how we think, why we talk as we do, act as we do, feel as we do. If we want to get to the root, if we want radical change, then that means getting to the heart of the matter. And so change of heart requires a few things. In the first few sessions of this series, we saw that it requires a change of perspective. That change of perspective is a change from looking for uh, modifications to our circumstances or relationships outside of us and looking inside rather than outside first. It's great if other people and the external circumstances with which we have to deal can change for the better. But we can't control that. The only thing we can control is our reaction to those and interaction in those. And so it's a change of perspective from looking first to the outside to looking inside. And then it requires a change of counselor. Many of us make the mistake of thinking that our best counselors are people who are in the same mess that we are and are making the same mess that we are. What we need is someone outside of our mess. And thankfully, we have that someone in God himself, and he is a God who communicates. The reason we are able to communicate is because we image him. And so he's a communicating God, and he has communicated in a book. He's given us his word that tells us about himself, ourselves, his world, our role in it, and what what has gone wrong. So God is then our number one counselor, and our number one counseling book really should be uh, the Scriptures. So if we're going to have a change of heart, it requires this change of perspective from the outside to the inside, a change of counselor from those that are inside the mess that we're all a part of in a fallen world to one who's outside of that, namely God, who can then uh, give us a, a perspective from above. And then thirdly, and this is where we are now in these notes, it requires a change regarding changing. That is, it may not change for you, whatever it is. It may be chronic. You may have a debilitating physical issue. You may have regular struggles with with finances and your job prospects, your ability to find a better job, And all of that is not in the offing, so that may be with you for a while. You may be in a relationship that you're not able to to change. If you're married, then you're not at liberty, according to God, to simply leave if it's not going well. 
Rather, there are only a very few circumstances under which we are able to abrogate the, the marriage covenant. And so I may be in a relationship like that, that I simply, or if my job situation is one that I'm not able to change, that may have financial repercussions. It also may have relational repercussions because I'm stuck in this job with these people, with this boss. So you can think, and we could make a very long list of things that we cannot change. And so we need to have a change, we need to have a change regarding our view of changing. God wants to change us in the midst of chronic circumstances. We saw a number of examples of that in the life of Job, in the life of the Apostle Paul. So a change of heart requires a change of perspective, change of counsel, or a change regarding changing. And that's what we're dealing with now. And we'll pick up on page 17 in your notes in a moment. But throughout the history of the church, the 2,000-year history of the church, at various times, the church has had faced particular doctrines that were under attack, especially under attack at particular times. If you know a little bit of church history, you know that in the early centuries of the church, the, that Christology, the doctrine of Christ, who is Christ? Is he, certainly he's a man, but is he also God? Is he fully God? And that was a debate for the first few hundred years of the church that was very prominent and you had a guy named Arius, A-R-I-U-S, A-R-I-U-S, and his view was that Christ was a created being and he was not God. And that Arian doctrine lives on today in groups like Jehovah's Witnesses who teach that. And Arius was opposed by a man named Athanasius. And you can read about their debates, uh, famous debates, and it's fascinating if you just Google those names, Arius, Athanasius. Uh, but it resulted in uh, creeds, uh, creeds regarding the person of Christ, the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, that Orthodox Christians be believed and believe to this, this day, not because the creed says it, but because the creed accurately reflects what the Bible says about who Christ is. You had another council in the year 451, uh, A.D., the Council of Chalcedon that also dealt with who uh, Christ is as both God and man, fully God, fully man. All right, so Christology, first few hundred years. During the Middle Ages, soteriology, that's a fancy term for the doctrine of salvation, how someone is related to God, how we are able to establish a relationship with God, particularly the doctrine of justification, how are we righteous before a holy God. And during the Middle Ages, the dominant church taught that that was by your works, by what you did. That's what brought about the Protestant Reformation, a protest against that to reform the church, in particular with regard to that, the doctrine of justification, soteriology, so Christology and soteriology. And then in more recent years, over the last few hundred years, a focus of attack has been on the Bible itself, bibliology. Is the Bible God's Word? If it is God's Word, then a corollary of the fact that it has come from God is that it's without error. God cannot lie. And so if God actually is the one who superintended the writing of the Bible, 
then we believe it is without error. But that has come into question in the last couple hundred years, and there have been fierce debates about that. Uh, there have been seminary, one of the seminaries from which I graduated, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, started as a result of professors leaving Princeton Seminary in New Jersey for this very reason, over the doctrine of the Bible. And they started a seminary that did believe then, a hundred years ago, and believes now that the Bible is the Word of God and without error. So Christology, Soteriology, Bibliology, today, today what's under attack is the teaching, the biblical teaching regarding anthropology. Anthropology is the doctrine of humanity. Who are we as human beings? How do we understand, are we to understand ourselves as, as human beings? The Bible teaches that we are to understand ourselves. Biblical anthropology, a biblical study of humanity, sees us first of all as creatures made by the Creator. So we are first of all under authority. We are not autonomous, but rather we are creatures of the, of the Creator under His authority. And as humans, we have unity within the human race, the entire human race, but we also have diversity. And that diversity includes, uh, includes ethnicities, it includes, uh, it includes uh, sex, gender. There's unity and diversity. Biblically, we are amazing creatures, fearfully and wonderfully made, to quote Psalm 139, made in the image of God comfortable originally in our own skin, in who we were before God. That's the biblical portrait in the first couple of chapters of the Bible after humanity is created. Comfortable before God, comfortable with one, comfortable with one another. Well, that would have all been good if we could have just left it at that. If Adam and Eve would have just, you know, been fruitful and multiplied. And then we show up, and we're comfortable in our own skin, and we're fearfully and wonderfully made and made in the image of God, and we're comfortable before God, and we're comfortable before one another. Ah, but the story continues. And biblical anthropology has this subcategory to it called, the fancy term is homartiology, and that is the doctrine of sin. Sin messes stuff up. It's messed us up. It's messed up our world our relationship with God. We're no longer comfortable before God. We're no longer comfortable with one another. Causes all the mess we are in now. And that, and that issue today is the doctrine of anthropology. You guys see it, right? We see it all over the place. We see it certainly in the gender stuff. And people just can't figure it out. And, and for sinful reasons often refuse to, to figure it out, and so we create our own identity wrongly. So this fall, our next outreach series, for which we'll be sending out mailers, I've mentioned this a few times, is titled God's Design for Sexuality. So fools rush, rush in where angels fear to tread, so I'll go ahead and take it on in the fall. And see what the Bible says about these issues. And, you know, kindly and, and directly but, and truthfully, 
present what God says, and we hope to be a help to those who are, are confused about who we are as human beings, about anthropology. This week, I was uh, in my car, and I often when I'm in my car, I listen to NPR, National Public Radio, which I know some of you think, I knew it. He's a, I knew he was a closet liberal. You've got to be kidding me, NPR? Yeah, that's, that's, that's why I listen to uh, very often. And um, there is an afternoon show called Stateside, and it's about Michigan stories. And they are doing a series now about a guy who's from Michigan who decided when he, in his early 20s he just didn't know what to do with himself. He didn't know um, what he should do with his life. He was aimless. You know, it describes a lot of early 20s people. And so he decides that he's going to take, get a horse and he's going to ride the horse across the country, which he did. He rode his horse all the way across the country from coast to coast. This is an ongoing series. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything else about it because I'm hoping that I'm going to make liberals out of all of you because <laughs> you're going to go listen to NPR this week and try to see, see what happens. But I bring it up for this reason. As I'm listening to that, and honestly, friends, as I listen to everything, I try to filter it through a biblical view of the world. And that's what all of us should, should try to do as best we can. And when I hear about a young man who doesn't know what to do with his life and he decides that what I need to do is ride a horse across the country. Now, it's interesting. I'll listen to the series. But it's also sad that this is what it's come to. For humanity, made in the image of God, for us to try to have to figure it out, and then we just on a whim decide, I'm going to find my identity by doing something like this. When the God who made us gave us our identity, and it's only because of our rebellion against him, that harmatiology, the sin problem, that we don't know who we are, and we're not comfortable in our own skin and not comfortable with him. All right. So anthropology is the big deal today. You see it all over the place. And I have a nine-minute video that we're going to try to show. Do we have it queued up? Do we think we can show it? All right. So this is from 1970, and this is the British preacher uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he's being interviewed uh, by a British uh, TV personality. And, but Martin Lloyd-Jones is with the Lord now. But he was just great. Anything Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote or said, you should, you should listen to. And so he's talking about anthropology here. That, he, that the modern popular idea of what man is is on the wrong track. Could you specify where you think he's making mistakes? Well, it makes a mistake in that the essential biblical view of men is that he's a creature who has gone astray. In other words, I, I criticize the, the modern view of men on two grounds. One is that it makes too much of men. Secondly, that it doesn't make enough of men. Um, it, it doesn't make enough of men in that it tends to regard him as just an animal. Perhaps his cerebrum has developed a little more than most animals, but still essentially an animal. 
and I think that's uh, degrading men and debasing him. But then you see on the other on the other side, they make too much of him, in the sense that they believe that uh, he's got it within himself to order himself and his society and uh, more or less uh, to create a perfect world. So I, I criticize on both those grounds. It's inconsistent. Whereas the biblical view, to me, is a consistent view of men in this way, that it says that men is a creature created in the image and likeness of God, that he's not a mere animal, that, that he's the lord of creation, that, that the image of God, such as, uh, which means his reason and his power to criticize and evaluate and to control himself, this image of God is in him, and that is man essentially. Well, then why is man as he is? Well, that is because he's rebelled against this, rebelled against God and uh, regards himself as a god, and he's incapable of functioning as such, the result is you've got chaos. But this is a unified view. Can we take then some of the elements that you find wrong with the modern image of man? Now, you say that he's, put, he's uh, treated as less than man, but in respect of his animal instincts and the research that has been done into man as the naked ape, um, the victim of environment and uh, heredity. Now... You cannot presumably quarrel with the actual facts of, that have been scientifically ascertained about this. Yes, I, I would a little bit query this scientifically uh, ascertained. You see, so much today is asserted as fact in the realm of science, which is nothing but theory and hypothesis. This is one of the great troubles, it seems to me, today. And I, 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 I'm, I'm not only sceptical about it, I tend to ridicule it for this reason, that I know in my medical training, uh, we were told, you see, that a uh, hundred years ago, they regarded the thyroid gland as a vestigial remains, no function. Well, we know now that you can't live without it. And they're still saying that about the appendix. You see, they said this about so much. This is the arrogance of, of modern men, uh, because his knowledge is limited, he makes these wild assertions that can't be proved. All I'm prepared to agree with is this, that man today is behaving like an animal. But the question is, why? You say in one of your books uh, that the very essence of the problem is in the nature of sin. And you also say that, in fact, sin has always been part of man's nature, but sin used to be ashamed of itself, whereas today, sin excuses itself. Yes. Well, yes. I, 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 I don't think I've ever said that sin is an essential part of men. Men, I would say, as the Bible teaches, was originally perfect, but since man's original fall, sin has been a part of human nature. And that has been true, of course, throughout the centuries. I would say that the story of humanity is just a, a proof of this fact, that, that man is, is, is sinful now by nature, and, and, and this is, is bound to, to show itself. What you quarrel with is that the initial assumption about man today is that he's basically good, yes. but he goes astray and the blame must be put elsewhere. Now, indeed, there is some legitimacy in that point of view in that poverty and oppression and exploitation does uh, set many problems for man in which he doesn't always behave well. Would you not subscribe to it at all? Yes, man, man, this is where we've got to start with men as he is today. And my quarrel, you see, with, with the general outlook of today is this, that they begin to talk about treatment before they've established a true diagnosis. Now, I can't help putting it like this, you see. It's a very poor doctor who medicates symptoms 
and isn't aware of the disease that is producing the symptoms. Well, to me, the disease is this fallen or sinful nature of men. And because that is true, none of your medication of the symptoms is going to deal with the problem. And I maintain that this is what history is teaching us, that, that with all our advantages today, the problem is as great as ever. What then is the nature of man's sin that you wish us to recognize? It's this. It isn't so much that he does things that are wrong and that thereby makes himself miserable. Now, I, I think this is an important point, if I may say so. I, I, I'm glad you asked that question. There are some people who would represent sin as a sickness and say that man is sick. Uh, there are Christians who would say this. Well, I agree that man is sick, but to me, that's not the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is that man is a rebel, and he is sick because he's a rebel. In other words, the business of Christianity, ultimately, is not simply to make us feel happier or even to make us live a better life. It is to reconcile us to God. Man, in, you see, from this biblical standpoint, was never meant to be autonomous or self-contained. This is my quarrel with the modern view. They regard man as autonomous. He is the master of his fate, the captain of his soul. It's so obviously ridiculous because he isn't. However, this is where they start. Whereas I start by saying that man was not only not meant to be autonomous and can't be and can't act as such, but he only functions truly when he lives his life under God. The God who made him has made him in a given way and has put laws in his nature. While man doesn't respond to this essential law of his being and is quarreling with his maker, he's bound to go wrong. He's bound to be miserable, and what he does will be wrong. He'll produce chaos. And he, he's done so throughout the centuries. This is the whole story of the human race. But it, it isn't merely that he's sick. It's, it's that his attitude towards his maker is wrong. Now, the, the Apostle Peter, for instance, puts it in a phrase like this, that Christ came into the world to bring us to God. That's why Christianity must never be thought of as a sort of cult, which heals your body, enables you to sleep at night and to stop worrying and all. Now, that's to turn it into a cult. The, the real object is to bring men to his true position, which is that he is in communion with his maker and is living to the glory of his maker. Now, there's a very well-known definition of this, uh, the, the Scottish Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian Confession of Faith, known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. They produced a shorter catechism. And the first question in that is about man. What is the chief end of man? And this is the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But you, you see the order. You glorify God. Or let me put it in another way to you. Uh, a clever fellow, a lawyer, one, one day tackled uh, Jesus Christ and said, which is the first and the greatest commandment of the law? You see, they were dealing with about 613 commandments and they were arguing as to which was the greatest. Well, that fellow had a great shock when Christ answered him. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first and the chiefest commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now today,
to finish the sentence there, he was saying, today we put the second one first. That's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's with the Lord now. I look forward to seeing him in heaven in the future. Uh, he mentioned his medical training. He was a medical, he was a medical doctor. And we need 10,000 Martin Lloyd-Joneses today. But there's a guy who gets it. He gets biblical anthropology. He sees how it fits together, and he sees what the solution is. And that's what I want us to see. Plus, I want to be able to say rebel the way that guy says uh, rebel. I've always tried to roll my tongue that way. I can never make it happen. Page 17, then, on your notes. And you see the chart there that we saw last week. And going up from the bottom in the middle, getting to the heart of the problem, is the issue of what do we believe? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about the world in which we are placed? It says faith and unfaith there. Faith and belief are the same words in your Bible. So you can substitute those. So it's belief and unbelief. It's faith and, and unfaith. And then going up from the middle there, a lack of proper belief, not believing the right things about God, about ourselves, others, his world, then leads to these other things in an ascending way and then ultimately ends in self-reliance. The things on the left are then results in our lives from that. So, with that in mind, if you look at page 18, we started looking last week at unbelief. I made the statement, and I stand by it, that every sin that we commit is at bottom an issue of failure to believe. I take matters into my own hands in order to do it my way rather than, than God's way because in some way, I don't believe that God can. I don't believe that God will. And so I sin. That results, as we saw last week, and this is where we left off, in shame. Middle of page 18. After Adam chose to not place his confidence, his trust, his belief in the Lord, he felt weird inside. It's what we call biblical shame. It's an internal awkwardness where we're not totally comfortable in our own, skin, in our own skins. This uncomfortableness, if not satisfied by a redemptive relationship with the Lord, will motivate a person to find solace in other ways, through other means. And this explains why there's so much unrest and discontentedness in our lives. So we're not comfortable with ourselves because we are not comfortable with God. And that's, as he was saying, you've got to have the proper diagnosis so that you can then uh, treat the real problem rather than just the symptoms, which in turn leads to guilt. Born out of the shame comes the experience of guilt. It can be true or false guilt. Even unbelievers feel the guilt of their wrong actions. We're set up to feel guilty because we know there's something fundamentally broken inside of us. We are born in Adam. We are all sons and daughters of, of Adam. So we inherit the nature that they acquired because they disobeyed God. We have this sense of, of inner death. So we don't feel right. 
There is this inner shame. And then the guilt piece is this, that I know at least to some extent it's my fault. In the words of that great theologian, Jimmy Buffett, and Margaritaville. You guys remember, you guys remember that song? Just wasting away in Margaritaville. And he just goes through the song, and as he goes through the song, he's saying, you know, uh, some people say there's a woman to blame. And so he goes through that, you know, there's somebody else to blame. Finally, by the time he gets to the end of the song, he says, it's my own fault. And so we know, all of us know, even as we try to deflect and deflect the blame, which is what Adam and Eve did in the garden, we continue. But we know that, at least to some extent, we are guilty, which leads then to fear. Bottom of page 18. The cumulative effect of the shame and guilt that stacks up on top of our unbelief is fear. That's what Adam felt in the beginning of the fall. He said as much after the Lord questioned him about his unbelieving actions. He says, I was afraid. I was afraid. I was fearful, so I hid myself from you. He intuitively knew he had done wrong. He felt something was broken inside of him. Thus, he went for the leaf grab <laughs> to, so, to, try to, cover, to try to cover up for it. Not being satisfied with just covering his shame, he bolted, running scared. So, if you believe the Bible is our counseling book, and you believe that what is described in the opening chapters of that book about humanity is a description of you, me, and, and everybody else, then you look at this pattern and now instead of using euphemisms to describe what you and others and I do, we can label it accurately. We can label it as shame and guilt and, and fear. Rather than I'm just trying to find myself. So I'm going to ride my horse across the... Okay? There, my, the point is there's something deeper going on here. When people have a wonder lust, the discomfort, I've got to find something deeper because nothing fits. I'm uncomfortable with myself. I'm uncomfortable with the God who, because I'm uncomfortable with the God who made me. So in the words of those great theologians, the eagles, desperado, you ain't getting no younger. Your pain and your hunger, I mean, the whole thing talks about somebody's yearning to try to find meaning. And it has this line that says, you're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny how the feeling goes away? You keep trying. Highs and lows. And then the feeling just goes away. Because the things that used to give me the thrill don't anymore, so now I've got to find something else, and now I've got to find something else. And all of it goes back to this. All of it goes back to what do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves, about others, about the world in which he's placed us? Top of page 19. So with all that, I've got I to gotta comfort myself. I've got to medicate this. I've got to do it in whatever ways I can. Because of his underlying sinful patterns, 
We're not rectified, but because his underlying sinful patterns were not rectified, by the redemptive work of the cross through salvation and ongoing growth, sanctification, he instinctively desired to find comfort through more man-centered means. Rather than running back to God, the only solution for his problems, he continued to take matters into his own hands. He became a comfort hoarder. And this is our Adamic pattern too. When things are going wonky, we look for comfort in all the wrong places. So you see that in your life? You see that in the lives of other people? You see that in the, in the stuff that you're chasing to try to find meaning in your life? It's all because of this. And the stuff you're chasing may not be, it may not be harming you in the immediate. You may not be taking drugs. You may not be drowning in, in alcohol, although you may be. You may not be pursuing you know, sex uh, outside of marriage in this wanton way in order to find this comfort, but you're, you're trying to find it somewhere. You're trying to find it somehow. And if it's not in the God who made you, then you're going to find it in some lesser person or thing. And this describes then, friends, the lives of people. This describes our lives prior to finding the solution in Christ and reconciling us to God. Control. Adam was now in control of his life. In most cases, we don't realize how often we succumb to control as a means to solve our problems. It is so habitual and subtle. To trust ourselves rather than the Lord seems to make sense. You see Proverbs 14, 12 there. There is a way that seems right to a man. That's what that says. But the end of that pathway is death, it says. Even when the Lord writes personal suffering into our story, we resist by redoubling our efforts to seize control. At the core of our being, we don't want to rely, that is trust, that is believe, have faith in God. This is a problem that permeates all of our relationships and contexts. So rather than trying to create my own reality, find my own comfort, what I should be doing is turning back to where the problem started in the first place, namely the break, up, the break in the, uh, my relationship with God, which has caused everything else. But instead, I try to create my own reality, take matters into my own hands, control, even when it's obvious that I'm not in control, personal suffering going on. And that's all because of then this final step, self-reliance, middle of page 19. When we can, feel ju- when we can even feel justified Excuse me, we can even feel justified for being self-reliant. The underlying fear is that we are not sure if the Lord has our backs. Or maybe we know the Lord has our backs, but our intuition says that what he plans for us not, might not be what we want. We know that if God was willing to put his son to death, then it's possible he could allow disappointing things in our lives too. Our God is a radical God who's not squeamish about giving us hard things for our good, for his glory, and the benefit of others. So we're going to continue on, finish off pages 19 and 20, but just stop here now. This is that middle section on that infographic on page 17, going up. 
And the final step is then this self-reliance, which is what Adam and Eve wanted back in the garden. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be able to determine what's right and wrong for yourself was the temptation, and they bought it. And so now here, and so now here we are. So the question for you, the question for all of us then is, do I trust God? Do I believe God? This God who made me that our first parents failed to trust. He told us what was good for us. We doubted it. The tempter put doubt in front of us and we took the doubt. So the question for you, the question for me is, do I trust God? Do I trust God with my life? And and if we're being honest, we have to think about that. Take my life and let it be. It's an old hymn. But the idea was, the Lord, Lord, use my life in any way you would like. It's a scary thing to say, isn't it? Because you're relinquishing control. I would just suggest to you this, friends. If you wonder if this God is good, if you wonder if this God has your back, which we all do, The place you ought to look is at the cross of Jesus. There are lots of things in this fallen world that we can't put together and figure out that cause us to say, why is it this way? Why is it this way in my life in particular? And as those questions cause you to look to God and wonder about the character of God, if you want to know the heart of God, if you want to know the character of God, look at the cross of Jesus. Because this God whose character we're questioning came to earth, suffered himself, and died for you. The cross ends all questions about the good character of God. If you believe it. And then it can end our self-reliance. And then we can go back to the beginning and the unbelief and all of that and we can rewind the tape of our lives here so that we experience it differently. We can't always change the reality. We can't experience that reality in a radically different way. So middle of page 19. The most common themes in our lives are those outlined from the unbelief to self-reliance vertical list. However, as we consider our thoughts and behavior further, we often find other underlying and hidden themes. This is that second constellation of sin patterns. It's in that infographic. It's on the left side. Not necessarily related to the first group. Our independence from God can take us in many sinful directions, and these are simply common examples. So one is our approach to suffering. We have a weak theology of suffering because we have an aversion to suffering. If we can get out of pain, we'll take the quickest exit. An exit strategy may not be God's plan for our lives. And so, and so comfort is not the end game for us, as Martin Lord Jones was saying. Do you guys, did you hear what he said? He said, Christianity is not a happier life. Christianity is being reconciled to God. And, and sometimes, and in fact often, God uses the difficulties in our lives to lead us to that very thing. 
Part of the reason some of you are at a series like this is because God has brought those kinds of things into your life. And you said, I need to go to a series about seeing some things change. Self-righteousness. We have a high view of ourselves. We're easily tempted to esteem ourselves more than, than others. And so I'm not comfortable in my own skin. I have this shame, you know, this, this uh, low-level kind of shame going on. I've got this guilt because I know it's partly my fault, at least partly my fault. But I don't want to accept responsibility for it. And so I have this ongoing battle, and so I compare and contrast myself to other people. That's what we do. We compare and contrast ourselves to other people. And we find there's always people who are worse than us. That's the great news. And so there's always then room for this self-righteousness, a higher view of ourselves. But, but that's the process. That's the internal process that we go through. Or sinful anger. The most common expression of self-righteousness is anger. A greater than, better than attitude that puts other people down. We live in an angry world and we're easily tempted to be angry. Now, what is the connection between anger and self-righteousness? Self-righteousness says, I'm good enough such that I deserve better. Self-righteousness says, I'm good enough, therefore I deserve better. Sinful anger is my reaction to not getting that better that I think I deserve. My situation should be different. I'm better than this. And the failure for God to supply it, or my spouse to supply it, or my boss to supply it, or my church to supply it, or whoever, they're the object of my anger. Fear of man, bottom of page 19. We're also insecure, or what the Bible calls the fear of man. You see that verse there, Proverbs 29, 25. It says this, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. Now, the fear of man, fear in the Bible means afraid, but it also means that we're sometimes afraid because we revere. We fear because we revere. We place someone or something on too high a pedestal so that we revere them and because we have an abnormal reverence for them, we fear what they can do to us or we fear what the loss of that person will do to us because they're that important in our lives. So here's an example, just a practical example of how it works out. I want the approval of other people and so I need to keep up with other people. I try my best to keep up with other people. I see other people around me who are more beautiful than I am, who are more handsome than I am, who are faster than I am, who are stronger than I am, who are more wealthy than I am, whatever. And so I want to be attached to that because I revere that. But the fear of man, the over-reverence for other people will prove to be a snare. It will ensnare you because you chase that lesser person's and lesser things that I mentioned earlier. And then lastly, top of page 20, sexuality issues. We are a sexually messed up lot. Everybody struggles one way or another with sex and sexuality. Nobody's insulated. Then from all of these 12 universal assumptions, depending on your story, you'll find them peeking out in your heart too. 
These are some of the common themes in humanity. It is what was in Adam, and we're cut from his cloth. The real question is whether we can see these things in our lives. So in what ways are you these things? Self-reliant, seek control, a comfort seeker. Do you over-revere and therefore fear? In what ways do you struggle with internal shame and guilt? And at the bottom of it all, in what ways is unbelief active in your life? We'll give you a new set of notes next week as we conclude our series. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being able to be here on the Lord's Day, to gather with your people, to learn of you from your book. Thank you for loving your creatures enough to give us instructions about who you are, who we are, why we are here, what's gone wrong in this world and in our lives. Thank you as well for the Lord Jesus Christ, God having come as man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. I pray that you will grant insight to my brothers and sisters and friends here, all of us, so that we will be willing to look at ourselves in a, in a uh, truthful way, in an accurate way, to not make excuses for what we do and how we go about our comparing and contrasting and looking for love and comfort and other things in all the wrong places and people. Help us to see that each of us within our hearts coming out in our desires, coming out in our our actions. And may all of it turn us to you. At bottom, all that goes wrong in our lives, all that goes wrong in the way we handle what's wrong in our lives, is because we fail to repair to you. So we ask you to help us to do that. We ask you this week to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.